Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu slash seminar. Richard Hayes, a renowned New Testament scholar and dean of the Divinity School, when I came to Duke Divinity School um, eight years ago, used to say that the purpose of the Divinity School is to cultivate a scriptural imagination for the renewal of the church. And certainly one of the things we aspire to in the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative is to cultivate a scriptural imagination, a biblical imagination for the renewal of how the church both engages in and practices as well as makes use of the world of healthcare. And we're going to explore that some today by looking at some narratives of healing that we find in the Bible. And we, I'm delighted that we are able to do that with two remarkably, um, remarkably accomplished and, and wise friends and teachers here at Duke Divinity School who are scholars of the Bible, of the Old Testament, and, and of the New Testament. Um, Ellen Davis is, and these, these introductions are going to be quite brief. There's much more to say about both of these folks, but in the interest of time, I'll keep this brief. Ellen Davis is Amos Reagan Kearns Distinguished Professor of Bible and Practical Theology at Duke Divinity School. Dr. Davis has authored 11 books, including what may be a magnum opus here of late, uh, the book Opening Israel's Scriptures, published by Oxford in 2019, which is a comprehensive theological reading of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Her current work explores the arts as modes for scriptural interpretation. Kevin Rowe is the George Washington Ivy Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Vice Dean for the faculty here at Duke Divinity School. He's the author of four books, including his most recent book, um, really gauged at uh, the kind of, I would describe it as the, the learned lay audience. I, I commend this to all of you. Uh, Christianity Surprise, A Sure and Certain Hope, published by Abington just last year. Both Professor Davis and Professor Rowe are beloved teachers, mentors, um, and scholars of the scriptures here at Duke, and I'm, I'm really delighted to have them with us. So we're going to start. I'm going to share my screen here. Okay. With some healing narratives uh, from the Bible. Um, And Professor Davis, I'll ask you to introduce us to this passage and, and what you want us to pay attention to in it. Is Professor Davis on? There you are. Okay, I can't keep track of when you mute me and when I mute me. Okay. Sorry. Um, I chose this passage because it's the only time in 
Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament, that God self-identifies as a healer. Um, and it also comes at a nodal point in the biblical story. This is just after Israel has crossed the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, as it's called in the Bible. So this is the very first thing we hear about Israel on the far side of the, um, of the Red Sea. Moses journeyed with Israel from the Sea of Reeds and came out to the wilderness of Shur, and they walked three days in the wilderness and did not find water. The, they came to Macha, which means uh, bitter, but could not drink the water. Sorry, could not drink the water from Macha because they were bitter, Machim. That is what, why they call it Macha. So the people complained to Moses. What are we going to drink? No, you need to go back. Sorry. Go ahead. And then he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him, so you can't see it, showed him a stick and he tossed it into the waters and the waters became sweet. And God said, if you really listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commands and keep all his precepts, all the sickness that I inflicted upon Egypt, this is interesting, this is God speaking, all the sickness that I inflicted upon Egypt, I shall not put upon you, for I am the Lord your healer. And they want, went on to Elim, and there were 10 springs of water and 70 date palms, symbols of abundance. They camped there by the water. So I'll point out three things here quickly. First, it's in Egypt that for the first time, Israel is referred to as an Am, a people. Um, and so this is a story about the healing of the whole people Israel, not individuals within it. Uh, second, the first thing that happens is, you might say, the healing of the environment. They get to a place in the wilderness where the water is not potable, not an uncommon thing in that part of the world. Um, and so God shows Moses how to render the water safe for drinking. You might say that the healing of the people, the healing of the environment takes necessarily is the starting point for the healing of the people. And then you don't see it from this passage, but immediately afterwards, the very next verse after the ones that I've put on the screen for you here, is Israel journeying on um, in the wilderness. And then you have the story of what are they going to eat? The manna economy. So I chose this passage in part because this is a theology, medicine, and culture event. And what happens immediately after this is the creation of a culture of food sufficiency for all. Um, so I would infer from this story and the one that immediately follows it, that when God self-reveals as Israel's healer, 
we need to understand healing as having to do with meeting the most basic human needs. Here, water, and then we're told at Aileen, there were 10 springs of water and 70 date palms. So water and food, and then, as I say, the manna economy immediately follows. Um, that would be my initial take on this passage. Let me ask you this, Helen, because one of the things that's, that stands out in this passage to me is the conditional, the mm -hmm. if, mm -hmm. if you really listen. Mm -hmm. God says, I am your healer, but says, if you do this, then I will not inflict uh, the, right. the illnesses of Egypt. So speak to that. Okay. Um, this is, you might say, the run-up to Sinai. Uh, Israel will get to Sinai in four more chapters, Exodus 19. The commandments are given in Exodus 20. Um, and the ancient rabbis used to say, um, Torah is not given except to the eaters of manna, which is to say, if you can't learn the basic lessons from the wilderness, then what God says, the special revelation from Sinai, isn't, isn't going to mean anything to you. Mm. So this is the kind of propedeutic, you might say, to Sinai, establishing a culture of healthful interaction with the environment. I know it sounds terribly um, au courant, but in fact, this is how the ancients understood life. If you can't, if you can't live in the place where you are, well, then you're past praying for. Um, and so it's this, you're quite right. It's a condition. And Sinai is a conditional covenant. You have to be ready to hear what God has to say to you. Um, I have more questions on that, but I'm going to hold them for the moment. And we're going to, um, let's see here. We're going to move to a passage from the Gospels, from Jesus's healing interactions. And this is from Mark chapter nine. I'll, I'll read this and then I'm going to ask Professor Rowe to comment on what he sees here. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd about them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a dumb spirit and wherever it seizes him, it dashes him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has he had this? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible to him who believes. 
Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you dumb and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Dr. Rowe, what, what strikes you in this passage? Thank you, Far, uh, for unmuting and for reading the passage so well, uh, both things. Um, so there, there are several things that we could talk about in this passage, but part of the reason that I chose it has to do with the perennial question that comes to us today about the role of faith in relation to healing and what faith is, what it looks like, whether it plays a role uh, in God's healing, whether healing is more like magic uh, and faith more like the token that you hand over to get healed or whether it's not. Uh, and that sort of thing. And this passage, um, I think, is is also one of the kinds of passages that um, really resonates uh, with people who uh, long for someone they know to be healed. And uh, whether it's the doctor who's wanting the patients to get better or family members or whatever. So I'll just make a couple of comments and, and um, there's much more to be said. I think the first one that occurs to me in hearing the passage read again is what you might call the nature of faith. Uh, what, what is the faith that we see in this passage? Jesus begins by saying um, that the generation is apistia, faithless or unfaithful. By the way, just as an aside, how the English translator decides to punctuate things um, and reflects a certain tone in the passage is important. So you, you could hear rebuke, you could hear more questioning, you could hear a lot of different things, but the word that's used is, is untrusting. This generation does not trust. Trust and faith are the same word uh, in Greek, and we often have to make a choice in English between them. Um, but, but the generation does not trust. And then there's the father um, who is sort of both faithful and unbelieving at one and the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and that raises the question of what, what is faith? Is it something cognitive that he suddenly realized, oh, what Jesus says is true. Um, and I now assent to that truth. And that assent becomes the lever that then works the healing. It doesn't look like that. What it actually looks like when you spend enough time with the passage is that the second he hears Jesus say, all things are possible if you believe, is he just blurts out with the first thing that his desperation allows him to think, which is, okay, all right, I believe. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, I don't believe, but I will for the sake of my, my son. Um, and how, how like a father that is. Um, and that is good enough for Jesus. He doesn't say back to the father, are you sure? You know, what, what is faith anyway? 
Um, let me give you the list of things that I would take it to be and see if you can check them off. Um, he acknowledges and receives the man's unbelief and his confession of unbelief as the trust, the faith. And I think that that is um, more like, anyway, uh, a lot of the, the faith dynamics that are involved in prayers for healing, um, at least as we encounter them today, where there's a profound longing and desperation and some measure of trust. I mean, the, the guy brings his son to Jesus, but where there's also, if we're dead honest about it, a, a remarkable amount of uh, unbelief and um, not so much a considered skepticism, although that can be there too, but, but just a, a, a lack of, of trust. And in this passage, that's not a problem. That's just the way things are. And it seems to me that gives us some insight into what the posture of faith or trust is vis-a-vis -vis some of the healings in the New Testament. Do you, do you, um, do you, yeah, do you think, do you think given your familiarity with, with the, the shape of the gospel narratives, it, is Jesus saying this to him as some kind of challenge him to, to consider something, to reckon with something? I, I, you know, Jesus never says anything without a, a point to it that is an address to the group or the people to whom he's speaking. And so you, you're right to surmise that here you might find the same thing. I, I think it's more of an invitation hmm. um, than it is a, a, a frontal challenge uh, to the man's. He, Jesus sees that the man is desperate. It's such an interesting question. How long has he had this? I mean, it's like, like the, the doc, you know, we begin telling your story or getting the history, um, but it's an invitation uh, to lay out uh, what hurts him so, what wounds him, and why he's brought this boy. Um, and you would see, I think, from that first question, a, a sort of leading and inviting uh, sense of, of lay bare what it is that you're here for. Um, more than, hey, buddy, you've got some reckoning to do with your doubt, uh, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. It, it strikes me that, 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 that the the man's response seems almost basically saying, I'm coming to you for help and I'll do whatever you want, whatever, you know, whatever you're saying, I'll do it. I, I need your help. Yes. Which yes. I think like if you're you saying said, that's kind of the shape of faith. That's right. I think if he had said, you know, healing comes by dancing a jig and standing on your hands and being able to do 3000 pushups without stopping. That's what that father would have tried to do. I, I, don't, I think he's that desperate for his son and that his um, response is, is the display, the desperation is the display of faith. I mean, it's, again, faith, uh, I, I tend to think of it more as trust. It's a posture. It's an existential posture in the moment. It's not just uh, noetic, you know, what you're thinking about. Let me, let me push on, on, um, one thing here, because I think a lot of people, when they see this, if they are either sick themselves or thinking about a sick one they love, they they can't help but noticing two things: an unclean spirit, mm -hmm. uh, which is somehow connected to this 
child's affliction. And two, Jesus closing by this comes out by fasting and prayer. Um, uh, what, so they might think, I mean, I guess we got to really fast and pray. We got to get serious if we want that kind of healing. And then they also might think we need to reckon with maybe unclean spirits that we're not paying attention to. So how, if you were helping them read the scriptures, what, how would you help, help them think about that? Excellent questions. Well, on the first one, um, the, it's bound together with a whole set of questions about um, the ancient view of illness, the uh, understanding of uh, non-human but rational or sentient beings, um, the blend between physical malady and uh, uh, sentient uh, disturbance from the outside um, and, and so forth that they took for granted in the ancient world and still today in many parts of the world. Um, and, and then on the, on the prayer question, it doesn't say fast in this passage, but it, you could add it in if you wish because it's in others, but come out by prayer. I'll say something about that in just a second. But on the first point, um, typically what happens is that people look for a kind of ham, they don't call it this, but they look for a kind of ham-fisted or clunky uh, decision-making apparatus so that you get your view about unclean spirits and illness and you use that view to read every single passage in the New Testament that brings up that connection. And it just doesn't work. There are ones like this where you look back and you think, that looks a little more like epilepsy or or whatever. And uh, the interpretation today would be a, a posture that would include a visit to the neurologist and would include all these other things and might also include stuff that is beyond what a neurologist could track. But you would, you would make the analogical connections. There are other passages, such as the Gerasene or Gadarene demoniac, that seem um, to claim a lot more than just there's a coordination between illness and, and uh, sentient uh, working on the person. And those are harder uh, to find the analogies for without also thinking about uh, things well beyond uh, human or natural disease processes, that is to say, beings of some sort or another. You'd have to think about those. Um, on the prayer question, so that is, when you're looking in the New Testament at passages of healing, some have uh, unclean spirits, and some do not. And of that first category, they're not all the same thing. So you have to go passage by passage and learn from reading slowly and with attention to a lot of the detail what the passage is actually trying to communicate. Um, the, on the second, on the prayer, it's interesting because as you read back through the passage with Jesus' conclusion, this kind only comes out by prayer. You don't find any praying in the passage. He doesn't look up to heaven and say, in the name of the Lord, or whatever. There's not any actual praying except perhaps the Father's declaration of desperation. And that might be a, a key to the passage, that that posture is a posture of prayer. Um, and, and it's not, therefore, the disciples who were, um, strictly speaking, didn't pray hard enough or whatever, but that there was, it really, it really was the Father's position of trust and untrust uh, that was what Jesus was willing to work with. Thank you.
Yeah. Um, Professor Davis, I'm going to ask you to turn your video back on and unmute. And we're going to move back to the Hebrew Bible, back to the Old Testament, to a interesting story. Uh, Professor Davis, would you tell us that? Thank you. Okay. All right. So this is another story, uh, probably even less familiar than the last one from 2 Kings chapter 6. Um, and it's a story, the themes are conflict, blindness, healing, and eating. Uh, so it's a story of, of, culture, of a culture of healing, I'm going to call it, uh, and a culture of seeing and or the cultivation of seeing in situations where people don't see. All right. Now, the king of Aram, Aram is Syria, um, major power in the, um, in the Levant in Western Asia. Uh, now, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I'm going to set up my camp in such and such a place. Uh, and the man of God, uh, this is Elisha, Elijah's protege. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God and time and again, Elisha warned the king. So he was on guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? He assumes there is a mole in the palace that's uh, telling the king, king of Israel where the troops, the Aramean troops are moving next. None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dotan. Uh, this is in the north of Israel. Then he sent horses and chariots and a force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. It's okay. There we go. When the servant of the man of God got up. So this is now we're inside Elisha's house. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Dotan is not a big city. Oh, no, my lord, what should we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He's seeing the spiritual army of God. When God is called the Lord of hosts, that means God is, God is the Lord of the heavenly armies. And this is what Elisha's servant is now seeing. So the enemy came down toward, as the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this, this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. So Elisha is praying two contrasting prayers, open the servant's eyes, strike this army with blindness. Elisha then goes out to the army 
and he misdirects them. He tells them, this is not the road and this is not the city, follow me and I will lead you to what you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. Samaria is the capital city of the kingdom of Israel. As they, after they entered the city, so they're coming into the royal citadel, the um, fortified city from which they won't be able to get out. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, he sounds like a little kid here in the Hebrew, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill? Actually, I would have translated this differently. This is not my translation. I would say, did you capture them with your own sword? Hmm. Your own bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then, then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. This is a word that I don't think it's used anyplace else in the Bible. I mean, this is a massive, dip, like diplomatic scale feast for the foreigners, but this is the foreign army. Um, so he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master, to the king of Aram. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. I'll make a few observations about this. Um, first of all, the section of the Bible that we're in here, this is, this is the book of Kings. Christians tend to call the book of Kings, they classify it as the historical books of the Bible. But the traditional designation of these is former prophets. And I think it's a much more revealing title. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, and it's a prophetically informed view of history and the dynamics of power. Um, and so what we are, one thing that we are seeing in this story is the connection between war and sickness and peace and health. Uh, the blinding of the enemy army and the word that's used for their blinding, again, is only used one other place in the Bible. And that's when the angels who come to Sodom strike with blindness the men who are trying to gang rape Lot and his family. Um, and the angels strike them with sanverim is the word, a sudden profound blindness. They can't see anything and Lot gets away. This is, this is that kind of blindness. It's not a natural condition. It is divinely imposed. Um, so God is working through the prophet um, you might say to open eyes according to God's will, open the eyes of the servant, also to close eyes according to God's will, uh, and then open them when God chooses to do so. This is exactly what we see in Isaiah 6, um, when um, God says to Isaiah, when you speak, you know, speak so that people will look and look and they won't see. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I think it's one of the conundrums of the prophets in a sense, that the more the prophet speaks the truth, the less some people are going to see. Um, and, um, and then the ending of the story strikes me powerfully. Um, the king of Israel thinks that what's at stake here is his own power. Now he has the foreign army within his citadel. He can finish them all off if he wishes to do that. You know, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? And But what the prophet says is, no, this is not about your power. Did you take them with your own sword, your own bow? This is, this is about God's power, and God chooses to use this as an occasion of massive hospitality. Mm. Set food and water before them, um, a, a great banquet before them, uh, and then send them home safely to their master. Um, this is, you might say, the original food for peace initiative. Uh, and as I hear this story, I can't help but think about in the modern world, as in the ancient world, as we know, every instance of warfare, every instance of occupation, every instance of imposing sanctions on another country um, leads to illness, leads to um, people not having the basic means of life. Um, Let me ask you, Dr. Davis, um, a couple of questions here. One, this story ends well. In this case, both for God's people and for their enemies. I mean, the enemies don't have to be wiped out in the way that in other stories, God's provision is shown by wiping out the enemy. Um, and um, so one, one element I want you, want you to comment on was the, the, the tension in the Old Testament between um, Knowing that God is good, and we saw in the last passage, God our healer, but, and we're celebrating what goes well, in this case it goes well, and then other times it goes terribly badly for God's people, and it's apparent that they can't see how God is, in this case the servant sees God as the angel armies, but they they can't see how God is present to them at all. Let me stop there, your thoughts on that? Okay. Again, I think it's important to it's important to bear in mind that this is, you might say, a prophetically informed reading of history, as I said before. Um, and so it's showing us the complex ways that God's power interacts with human powers. As you have quite rightly said, often, um, often it goes very badly for God's people. And, and in fact, there's a, there's a lot of realism, I would say, throughout the, um, throughout the Bible in both Testaments. One of the things that's problematic about the Bible is it's so realistic about human life. Uh, the very next story 
Avam and Israel are added again. Okay, so you might say the peace doesn't last. What I so I would take this story as a picture of the possible. It's all, it's almost a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. You know, it's a glimpse of what can happen if we foreground hospitality instead of foregrounding hostility and for the moment i have more i have you within my power shall i kill them shall i kill them so i would i would take it as an emblematic story of what's possible um i would also say that there's a great deal of coherence between these this reading of history these books of the former prophets and the latter prophets the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. Um, I just said that this passage reminds me of Isaiah 6, the first of those books, that Isaiah is going to talk and the people are going to look and look and they're not going to see. They're going to listen and listen and they're not going to hear anything until cities lie waste without inhabitant. And that's exactly what happens to Israel. Um, and so, um, and it's also the case that Israel was on, in the period of the monarchy, Israel is on the losing side of almost every conflict in the ancient Near East, uh, and probably in earlier periods as well. So, um, it's, I think it's important to read Israel's history to recognize that, in a sense, it's a reading of history from the underside, mm. from the people who are not winning the battles and are nonetheless looking for how God's power is operative in history, judging them for their sins. Uh, but also giving them glimpses of the possible. Hmm. And my reading of where we are in history right now, we appear to be a very powerful nation right now, um, but we also know that we're, um, we're entering into a period where there's a lot against us. Um, and... I think we're going to need to learn, if we are going to hold on to our faith, we're going to need to learn to read history in a more discerning manner and see how God is operative when things are not going our way. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna turn uh, back to the New Testament and Professor O ask you to, there you go, turn your video on and unmute. Um, and here we have a kind of final passage we're going to look at before we have take some questions from you guys uh, in the from our participants at a distance. And I'll just say up front, be, between um, Professor Davis and Professor Rowe, we, we have the Bible covered. So you can ask about any passage that's troubled you all your life about the scriptures. Um, but here we find uh, from Luke 7 the following. Soon afterward, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples... And a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the city, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, 
the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And he came and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and he gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report concerning him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Kevin, what, what would you have us notice here? Well, I think, um, as I mentioned about the first passage in, in Mark 9, I, I chose this passage uh, for us to reflect on a little bit, in part because of what looks like the absence of faith. Um, in, in the sense that there is no description that would sound something like this, and the widow had great faith, or someone in the crowd had great faith, or they all saw Jesus coming and went over to him and begged him to do X or Y. Um, what this passage displays in contradistinction to all of that is Jesus' own initiative um, that is a flat out start from his side of things. And if you ask why, why is it that he is going to or does uh, resuscitate? I'll say just a minute, a second, what, what, why I use that word. Um, this only son uh, for his widow. The answer that the passage gives is that he had compassion. Um, it's true that he might have had compassion in part because widows were vulnerable. And because this was this widow's only son, therefore making her even more vulnerable. Um, but we're not actually told um, what the compassion was about in any specific sense. It's more likely, therefore, that his compassion is simply one of response to the whole scene uh, of a funeral of a, a mother who's lost her only son, having already lost her husband. And um, Jesus is overcome and then works healing. And I think that is in part, um, some of, that's some of the mystery of any sort of healing that takes place. We reach out to grasp a, a kind of why, and, and there's really nothing to grab a hold of. Um, it's, it sort of eludes us. It just is the case that God is like that and can heal and will uh, sometimes be overcome with compassion and heal. It brings with it all kinds of questions about uh, why not other times and, and so forth. But I think, nonetheless, it's important to focus on a passage where it's clear that the initiation is on Jesus' side and that it's born out of his compassion uh, for the scene that he sees, for the, for the widow. Um, I said resuscitation because it's important to note that this isn't a resurrection. Um, the, the only son is not raised never to die again. Uh, he will die again, like Lazarus uh, in John's gospel, but he is brought back to life. And I think that's where, where I'd stop for. There are plenty, of, again, plenty of things to be said uh, around the edges, but that's where I'd yeah. stop. Um, let me ask you just one question. Then, folks, I'll, I'll just mention your, if you've already, I'm about to unshare the screen so we can see each other a little better. In fact, let me just do that. Um, if you'd like to ask a question, and I see one already, but just use the, the um, reactions 
button and, and uh, raise your hand. And then we'll take those as many as we can. Um, but um, my question, actually, Kevin, I'm going to hold my question because I, 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 um, I'll, I'll hold that for now. Okay. Um, let me start here with a question. Um, I'm probably going to mispronounce your name. Is it Opamipo Akarele? Would you unmute and you can turn your video if you want. You don't have to. But uh, I'd love to hear your question. Far, I'm wondering if you have the controls for all the muting. Uh, oh, yeah. Been... I couldn't unmute for a second. There you go. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for this. I really loved like seeing all of these um, stories that I've read myself personally, but like to also kind of see the theology and just a different perspective. Um, my question is on God's sovereignty. I was just reading yesterday in Romans 9 how he can, you know, show wrath to who he desires and show mercy to who he also desires. Um, he can harden the hearts of people he desires or not. He can choose Jacob over Esau. Some can argue like in the midst of suffering and just very difficult times, even for example, when Jesus is on the cross, Elohi, Elohi, Lama Sabachthani, um, you know, why has God forsaken me? Or God even putting the people of God in slavery for 400 years just for his glory, or even the scriptures of today, wiping out the enemy for the restoration of God's people. Can we speak a little more being on the side of healing when God doesn't heal for it seems like eternity? And some may question knowing God is good. How am I not seeing that goodness? How can it be selective for some people? And this question is outside of the context of the gift of salvation and eternal life or the crown of life for even those who face persecution and death for sharing the kingdom of God. Okay, big question. Um, Kevin or Ellen, either you guys want to take up that or in whole or in part? Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Um, exceedingly complex question, which I would see as having some similarity to Foucault's question to me earlier. Um, God's sovereignty, I'm going to start with the question of um, the Israelites. I'm going to start with Egypt because that's that's where I started earlier, and you raised the question of Israel being held in bondage for 400 years. Um, I don't, I don't think the Bible ever says that I can think of that Israel was held in bondage for God's glory. God, Israel is held in bondage because a Pharaoh arises who knew not Joseph. And he is the archetype of the tyrant um, in every age. And that's what I would call the realism of the Bible, that God's people becomes a people in that place and extended time of affliction. Um, there is a kind of miracle it seems to me 
in that the, in the persistence of their faith excuse me i'm going to ignore that um there's their faith persists um but there has to be some kind of or there i don't know that there has to be there is some kind of human intervention through the person of Moses, who God hears the people's cry, probably you know after after a very very long period of time, um, and but God's and the the fight with Pharaoh is a fight over sovereignty. Who's in charge of this situation? And that gets mediated in complex ways by Moses. So I don't have a neat answer for you, obviously. Um, but what we're seeing is a complex I'm going to call it historical interaction between human sovereignty, persistent human faith, divine sovereignty, and then the archetypal prophet Moses, who doesn't want to be in the situation, kind of inadvertently gets into the situation and yet becomes indispensable for the full manifestation of God's sovereignty. And it's precisely when Moses and Aaron fail to manifest God's sovereignty in the wilderness, in the book of Numbers, that God says, you're not gonna go into the promised land because you did not manifest faith in me. Uh, so I think all of God's sovereignty is not simply a top-down thing. Kevin, do you want to add anything to that? Thank you, Ellen. No, thanks, Ellen. Um, sure. A couple of things. Great question. Gets right to the heart of the difficulty of, of living with faith in the midst of unhealing. Um, but I wanted to say, uh, first, on, on the exegesis of Romans, it, it's important when you're reading scripture to read the passages in context. So you're right about what it says in Romans 9, but Romans 9 is part of Paul's argument in that letter that picks up at the beginning of that chapter, coming out of chapter 8 on all creation, moves into the election of Israel, and runs all the way to the end of chapter 11. So those statements about God can do what he wants and so on could sound capricious, if you just pluck them out of Romans and line them up under some topic called God's sovereignty. The, the question about those statements is to what do they lead? And if you follow the logic of Paul's argument in Romans 9 to 11, what they lead to is the end of chapter 11, in which there is unfailing redemptive mercy for all. And, and that's the character of God that Paul is struggling to find in that argument and to help the Roman Christians to see that in fact, the God who has the purposes with Pharaoh and, and Esau and so on, actually has those purposes in the larger context of his mercy to all. So when we're reading scripture, this is part of what I was saying about looking at the demons and illness and all that, uh, we, we have to pay attention to the 
the home in which we find particular scriptural passages and their words and their flavor and, and so on, and look at the wider context. Um, same with My God, My God, Why Have You Forsaken Me in Mark's Gospel. Uh, you would want to read that in light of Psalm 22 and the, the whole movement of that psalm, the movement of Mark's Gospel of the suffering Messiah to uh, resurrection and, and so forth. And, and what happens when you do that is you come out with something like a a dialectic is the word that we all, but, but a tension, something that's held together, it doesn't otherwise look like it would go together. And that dialectic is cross and resurrection. Um, there is real crucifixion, and there isn't a human life on this side of death that is not part of that pattern of crucifixion. And how it is manifested, of course, will vary, but sometimes it is manifested uh, in, in the suffering and in the unhealing and then the crying out to God for healing without finding in the typical uh, flat sense of just being healed of whatever disease uh, one has or, or injury or so forth. What the New Testament also affirms is that paradoxically, there is also often the hope of resurrection in that very moment. And, and so you do not live without hope, but you may not be healed. And, and that's some of the tension that you find in the text themselves. Um, there are times where people come to Jesus uh, with, with all sorts of desires for healing, and he heals them all. And there are other times where they come and he's got to get away. And you, you don't, you're not forced as a reader of scripture to pick one side or pick the other. They're both actual uh, truths about how Jesus' life is narrated. And turn out to be, and this is part of Ellen's point about realism, turn out to be a lot of times the texture in which we also find ourselves living, in which both things seem to be true. Um, just very quickly then, on, on the two typical, what I like to think of as reductions that we're trying to avoid when we think Christianly about questions of healing. One is the reduction to um, sort of, anthropological terms all the way about us, whether we have faith or not. Healing is purely a matter of the, of the human. And it's if we've got enough faith or the right kind of faith, we feel pious enough or our doubts have been dispelled, then we can pull that lever and, and God will act. And if God's not acting, then the problem is with us. That's a reduction to anthropology and it's what the ancient world called magic. The New Testament shouts against that. Uh, there is an unbelievably distorted and popular view out there that somehow this is the truth of things. The, the New Testament shouts against that. Um, the other reduction is to say it's all about God, and if, if God, and you sort of have to protect God, and if he's not healing, there must be some reason, and the reason's probably for my good, and the reason's probably... The fact is, it's inscrutable. Uh, we don't know. And both of those reductions turn out to be under, you could say it's been a lot more time saying why this is, but turn out to be under inspection, attempts to manage a, a fallen world and, and to get rid of the, the randomness and the luck factor that simply is part of human life. Um, it makes us very nervous uh, to experience our fragility as creatures and to be subject to luck. But that's part of the world's fallenness, even as the hope has broken in.
I am um, recognizing the time. I'm going to wrap us up there with the broken world and the hope that is broken in. Um, I, I'm struck as a practitioner of medicine myself that, and I suspect this, this is a symptom of the conditioning both of modern culture and uh, the world and the flesh and so on, and, and of being in medicine, that when I read these passages, I am kind of reflexively drawn to look for almost what Kevin, you just described as that way to interpret it that would help me understand how healing is brought about. Um, and how I might position myself or encourage others to position themselves um, so as to receive healing. And even though I know that's not, that's not, that's not the way the whole story is, is, uh, is, is meant to, to, to push us. Um, so I want to, I want to thank you both. Um, again, Professor Ellen Davis and Professor Kevin Rowe for um, helping us look at these healing narratives in the Bible with what I pray is new eyes. Lord, we all pray together. Lord, give us eyes to see um, and see clearly.